All right, so like Neil mentioned, over the next few weeks, we're going to be in this new sermon series called Angels and Demons, and we're going to be looking at some of the common misconceptions maybe that we have around the topic, what the Bible has to say, and how it impacts the real world. Uh, I figured October would be the perfect month to start a series like that with the subject, subject matter in the time of year. Um, you know, October is a great, I, it's one of my favorite months because I love the fact that humidity goes away. I mean, that's one of the highlights for me. Anybody with me? Uh, yes. Yeah. Can I get an amen? Uh, humidity goes away. The leaves change colors. Jeans, hoodies, flannel. You guys with me? You feel like, like all right, fall is coming. But there's also kind of this uh, with October, and, and, and I mean, most people just kind of innocently celebrate this and kind of revel. There's this kind of this dark cloud, this evil that comes along with October as well that people just kind of take part in very innocently and don't realize the real world implications of, uh, of celebrating this. But, um, you know, of course, I'm talking about pumpkin spice. And, and this evil is so, so significant, you, you guys with me, you tra- tracking with me, that, that it even masquerades itself as something, you know, warm and delicious in, in its most true evil form in the pumpkin spice latte. I, I mean, it, it just, this just, and some of you think I'm joking right now, I'm, 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 I'm dead serious, and I can tell that you've got a lot of pumpkin spice latte fans in here. This morning, all right, some of you are just willing to, all right, some of you are shaking your head no. All right, cool. Did you know that from 2003, this is how evil the pumpkin spice latte is. From 2003 to 2015, the pumpkin spice latte didn't even have pumpkin in it. Did you, did you know this? I mean, like, pumpkin spice is to make pumpkin not taste like pumpkin. Like, that's what it's there for. I mean, it's just, you know, go apples. Anybody with me? No? All right. You thought I was going to say Halloween, didn't you? Let's be honest. You thought I was going to say Halloween. You did. All right, we'll talk about Halloween. When I was growing up, my parents, we didn't celebrate Halloween. Anybody else had that same experience? All right. So when we were growing up, uh, we didn't put costumes on. We didn't go trick-or-treating. I mean, that was just not something our family did. And, and we did. I, I actually do remember, I think we went a couple times, maybe when we got older as kids, because my parents kind of shifted a little bit in their thinking, and it kind of evolved as... Uh, as they work through some, some of the things that, that were going on there, but we did, not, we did not celebrate Halloween. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, you, you poor guy, because you know, that's part of the trifecta of the, the fall to winter holidays, right? You got Halloween, and then, which is fun, and then you got Thanksgiving, which is incredible, and then Christmas, which is just the best. I mean, Christmas is amazing, and so you're leading. Yeah, yeah can, exactly. I, I, Christmas is amazing. Although, I, like, I'm cool if Christmas waits, for Thanksgiving, because Thanksgiving and, you know, anyway, Christmas commercials already, it's just kind of crazy. That's evil, too. Anyway, so uh, we still got candy and that kind of thing, but we didn't really go trick-or-treating or anything, and, and so don't feel uh, too bad for me, um, but I know, I know why my parents wrestled with that decision. Uh, you might think, no, that's kind of that's crazy. They wrestled with that decision, and I, respect, I respected that and still do, because evil is real. It's a, it's a real thing. Evil is a real thing. And vampires and zombies might not be real. I'm not saying they're real. Although uh, there's some interesting correlations between uh, the ebbs and flows of the political cycle and who's in power. Have you guys seen this? And, and why zombie movies or vampire movies become popular based on what's happening politically. Have you guys seen? You should Google it sometime. You can Google it right now if you want to. 
uh, and check that out. It's fascinating. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying to not go trick-or-treating, and I'm not saying to not wear a costume. Uh, some of, actually, some of our uh, traditions around things like Halloween and Christmas and those kinds of things, uh, you know, have Christian influence in them. Halloween stands for All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Eve, and so uh, people would dress up as saints and go around to people's doors and stuff like that, and so there's appropriations and misappropriations through, through those types of things, um, you, you know, as, as long as we're cautious about what we're celebrating or not se- separating, but here's the deal. Here's the thing, and here's what my parents were thinking then, and here's what we're going to be thinking now as we go through this sermon series, is that there is a real spiritual war that is being waged behind the things that we deal with physically. So whatever physical battle we might be facing, decision, thing that's going on in our life, there is a spiritual realm, there's a spiritual reality, there's a spiritual war that's being fought. While there's not an exhaustive explanation of the ins and outs of all of the spiritual realm throughout the Bible, uh, the Bible identifies very real encounters with evil in the spiritual realm. And so I I just want to give you two quick examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Uh, maybe you've heard of these, maybe you haven't. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, for example, the first king of Israel, his name is King Saul, he gets in a bind, he hasn't been following God's word, and he wants to talk to one of God's prophets who had, he had ignored while he was alive. And so he asks for his uh, people to find him a witch to bring up a prophet named Samuel up from the dead. Do you guys know this is in the Bible? This is in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Let me read a couple Uh, A couple highlights uh, for you. So Saul goes to this witch in Endor. I guess, you know, she lived with the Ewoks, maybe. And, no? Okay. All right, fine. First service enjoyed it. Uh, And and says, consult a spirit for me and bring up for me the one I name. And the king says, what do you see? And, And the witch says, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? An old man wearing a robe is coming up. And you keep going through the chapter, and Saul has a conversation with Samuel. All right, this is, this is creepy stuff. This is a creepy encounter, to say the least. And as you keep reading the chapter, you see Samuel actually responds to Saul. They have this conversation that's kind of crazy. You likely know, here's a New Testament example, you likely know that Jesus performed miracles, but did you also know that he performed exorcisms? This was a regular part of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 8, as he arrived into the next region he was traveling to, uh, he comes and there's two demon-possessed men that come out. They were hanging out around the tombs, and so they come out to meet Jesus on the road. And they say, what do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And Jesus looked over, there was a herd of pigs nearby, and so he cast out these demons, he exorcised them from these men into the pigs, the pigs ran down the cliff into the water and they died. All right, kind of a crazy story, maybe you didn't know that was in there and that Jesus had, had done this. But here's the fascinating thing, is that the townspeople heard that this happened, they came out to meet Jesus, and you know what they did? They asked him if he could please leave. <laughs> I mean, they were totally cool with the two demon-possessed men as long as they were just hanging out, you know, in their tomb area, even though nobody could travel down that way. But Jesus kind of crossed the line there when he exposed that there is a spiritual reality in our physical world. You start talking about 
angels and demons and the devil. You talk about the Holy Spirit and the unseen metaphysical nature of those topics feel strange. They feel weird, probably uncomfortable, especially since there are so many different weird, strange, and uncomfortable ideas about how these subjects influence the real world. Well, one of the things that I want us to understand as we talk about these topics is that spiritual is not a term for something that's less real than physical. The impact that evil in the physical world has on our lives definitely gets some, some attention. Chaos, natural disasters, disease, death, and deformity. But even more, defi- more difficult to reconcile, I think, are the atrocities, the evil that hum- humans choose to take part in willfully against each other. We see evil in war, in genocide, torture, abuse, cheating, assault, stealing, slavery, racism, murder. You get the picture. I mean, these are things that even though we recognize to varying degrees that there are innately virtuous moralities and ethics that we should all commonly agree on, there's still something beyond just neurons and synapses firing that cause us to take part in and be affected by real evil. And it's represented by something more than just the physical. Physical struggle is the symptom of a spiritual reality. And this is identified and is addressed a number of different times in the Bible. One of the most clear and direct times comes at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as Paul is under house arrest in Rome, he is penning this letter to the church of Ephesus. And his emphasis throughout the whole letter is that they would be unified, that they would walk as Jesus walked. They'd be unified in Christ as they live out their faith. And he closes out his letter by reminding them of what is at stake. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The spiritual reality is this, and if you continue to read through your Bible as a whole and see what the spiritual realm is and what it works how it works and, and what it looks like that, that God gives us through his Holy Spirit, who we are indwelt with as we become Christ followers, that we have an advocate through the Holy Spirit, but we also have an accuser. This is another name or description for the devil, an accuser who opposes God's plan for redemption. And the battleground is the spiritual heavenly realms, but the prize are our souls, the souls of humanity. That's what's being warred over. And while our advocate gives us strength, and is the power in which we stand against the devil's schemes, the accuser seeks to undermine us through deceit and craftiness. And the way in which he's most successful is to make it seem like the things that happen to us physically are more important than things that happen in us spiritually. Because of that, there are times people, even Christ followers, find themselves living lives of quiet desperation, wondering if there's a way to be free or experience freedom from the oppression and from the evilness and from the craftiness of our enemy. And so Paul reminds us to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand in the the battle against our enemy's craftiness and schemes. Ephesians chapter 6, continuing on, verse 13, Therefore, Paul says, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against evil, therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And Paul, you know, as he's describing this, he's not saying, hey, every once in a while you may need to pick these things up and use them. You know, when you feel like things are going well for you in your life, he's saying, no, this is, these are the tools that God has given us that we are to put on and keep on this side of heaven in order to stand up against the devil's schemes against us. And as Paul is describing this, he's essentially um, he, uh, describing the, the height of uh, soldiering at that time of day as he, each of these items are something that a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, would be wearing, and they were the most elite force that you could find on the face of the earth at the time. And so as Paul describes each of these things, I, I just want us to go through them and and discover what each of these things accomplish for us and why we're called to put them on, put on, put them on. Uh, so the first thing that Paul says is put on the belt of truth. And he doesn't actually say belt. When he writes this, he says, gird your loins with truth. And so what Paul has in mind is not necessarily uh, like a leather belt like I have on right now or a belt that holds on your, your sword and your sheath, but actually the leather, thick leather apron that a soldier would put on first before anything else. This helped to protect vital organs uh, this is the base upon which everything else, the armor, w- was put on. It helped you to move uh, very quickly. It gave freedom of, of movement. And this is what you start with. Fighting spiritual warfare begins with the truth. And that truth comes through Jesus. So this is what Paul is saying. Start with Jesus. Jesus says John, in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except from, from me, through me. And the reason, the reason this is so significant is that Satan is the father of lies. That, that, is his, that is who he is. That is what he tries to accomplish. And he is directly opposed to the truth. The one thing that our enemy wants us to not do is to not rely on and focus on and stand on the foundation of truth that we have through Jesus. That's the, that's the thing that our enemy wants to be the last thing on our mind. And yet it should be the first. And so you guys, have, some of you have heard me say this before, like one of the things that you need to ask yourself as you're dealing with things in life, whether it's a battle or, or just whatever issue that you're facing, decision that you're trying to make, is to ask yourself the question, what is true? What is the reality? Like not, we're not playing a game of chess here where you're trying to think like 25, 30 moves down the road and you're getting fearful and you're worried and you're anxious or you're depressed about the possibilities and all the things that may or may not happen. No, what is true? in the face of what you're dealing with right now. And what is true is that as a Christ follower, you are a child of God. You are covered with Christ. And that if you know Jesus, you know God, and you're good. That is the foundation from which all of us are meant to start in our fight against our enemy. The second thing that Paul mentions is the breastplate of righteousness. This is a very thick, light uh, metal, I say thick, it's a thin, strong metal that Roman centurions would wear that, that an arrow could not pierce. So from 20 paces away, they shoot an arrow, and it would just maybe nick this. It was very strong. It was impenetrable, and it protected the vital organs of the chest, the lungs, and the heart. Whilst Christians were absolutely covered by the righteousness of Christ, and so that's part of the breastplate of righteousness, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for us if it doesn't come along with us. And so it's not enough. Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen to what I say and kind of believe in it, and, and that'll be good. No, he says, do what I say. Don't just listen and hear. Do what I say. And this is where the breastplate of righteousness protects us in our lives. 
when we walk as Jesus walked, we have the heart. When we walk as Jesus walked, we have the heart that Jesus had, and that protects us from evil when we live out his righteousness. And then Paul goes on to mention uh, to have our feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Maybe he has Romans chapter 10, verse 15 in mind as he wrote, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That the Romans had these very specific leather sandals that enabled them to march very quickly. They were very rugged. Uh, they could do a lot more than in just boots uh, that, that maybe you would think would protect you more. They were designed for a lot of use and mobility. And there's kind of an irony here as well. You think, all right, we're preparing for war, and yet we want to fit ourselves with the gospel of peace. And the war and peace thing doesn't seem like it's very compatible. Only, though, if we don't remember that the battle is against evil and not against others. See, as Christ followers, we're part of a liberation that the gospel brings to those oppressed by the powers of sin and darkness. And that liberation brings peace. Our battle is not against each other. It's against evil. And the gospel brings peace. Paul then says, take up the shield of faith. Roman shield was made of wood. It was covered with a lot of hide. You would soak it in water before battle. So even if your enemy had flaming arrows, and that would seem terrifying and scary, there's nothing that they could do to penetrate that shield. And, and another thing that's very interesting about that is, like, keep in mind, I know flaming arrows sound scary, but, like, that's the height of Satan's weaponry. Like, he, he's not advanced any further technologically. It's not well, Satan's going to send a huge 20-foot ball of, you know, lava at your face that there's nothing that you can stand up against it. No, you're very well equipped in order to anything that he tries to do against you, you can deflect away. When... You and I keep our complete hope and trust in God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. See, arrows seek to find exposed places, weaknesses, chinks in the armor. But one of the fascinating things that Paul does here is he doesn't describe, remember, he describes the, the equipment of a Roman soldier, not the equipment of a lone gladiator in the arena. And so one of the things that Roman soldiers would do is they would drill together that they would use their shields, interlock them together, that would make them even stronger as a unit. They would line up together, they'd have their shields overlapping, they'd have shields that would come up uh, over, over top, and when they did this, they essentially created an impenetrable wall of defense. And so part of the shield of faith is, is not just our own faith and our own strength that we rely on as individuals, but it's the communal faith that we're called to help defend and protect each other, that we're not alone in this battle that we fight and face against evil either. God will protect and provide even when the enemy attacks through faith. And then Paul mentions the helmet of salvation. This is not something you would put on until you got to the battle. This was the indicator. I mean, soldiers would kind of carry this on the, on the strap, but this was the indicator that you're acknowledging that the battle is beginning. And as when you became a Christian, when you believed, when you put on Christ, when you were baptized in him, you put on your helmet of salvation. You acknowledge two things. One is that you've won the victory, and so you have been saved by faith through Jesus Christ, but also that there's a target on you because Satan doesn't want to see anyone go with God. He's in his death throes, and yet he's going to take down as many people as he can. Our helmet not only protects us, 
it, but it also is the assurance of a future promise and a present reality. And that is, while the devil may scheme to take down as many with him as he can, that he's already lost the war. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul mentions the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I just want to point out, this is the only offensive weapon that Paul mentions that we're to take up and to put on. It's described as a sword in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 as, as well. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And unfortunately, I know many of you have either used it this way, unfortunately, or maybe experienced this way, that we've used the Bible, we've used God's word as a weapon against each other. Yeah, that's not what it's designed for. It's not designed as offense against one another. It's used as offense against not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And their tools are temptation and deceit and oppression. And God's word preserved for us in the Bible is the tool, is the weapon that gives us the heart and the head knowledge to not only survive, but to defeat the enemy that is seeking to destroy us. And so this is how Paul charges us to be equipped for spiritual warfare. Now, one of the things he does at the beginning of this description uh, of the full armor of God, Paul repeats one word. He repeats the word stand. And anytime you see something repeated like this in the Bible, it's for the sake of emphasis. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. And one of the things that's really interesting to note is uh, there, there's no prescription here in Paul's description for retreat. So there's no armor for your back. There, there's no, like, explanation of here when you need to run away. Like, this is, like, there's no description here for, for that. Moments of rest, absolutely. Moments of rest in the Bible, absolutely. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me. Yeah, rest, cert, certainly. Retreat, never. The objective is to stand in the face of evil. And here's why. Because in a battle, there can be only one victorious army. And as a Christian, you're already part of the army that has won. Retreat isn't necessary. It's not a part of the vocabulary when it comes to spiritual warfare with God. In the Art of War, Sun Tzu writes this often quoted phrase. He writes, every battle is won before it is ever fought. And I don't know how well necessarily that holds up in modern warfare uh, these days, but here's the most important thing to remember and the thing Satan wants nothing more than to deceive us and distract us from when the day, uh, when evil comes in our lives. And here's the thing. God has already won the war. That's the thing that he wants you to forget. That's the thing he wants you to distract from, be distracted from. The war is already won. And if we, as the liberating army, lose our focus on who or what the enemy is, the casualty count begins, it becomes way too high. Knowing the enemy, what the battleground is, and how we're equipped to fight is essential to knowing how we define victory and freedom. And I'm going to tell you, 
It's not defined by anything that happens physically or results that we might want culturally or politically or socially. It's what, what God wants spiritually. In the spiritual fight against good and evil, there's God. Here are the players. It's God who is our king and ally who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And the devil, our enemy, who Peter, just like Paul, warns us to be alert and of sober mind against. He describes the devil as prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if you're feeling chewed up and spit out, or if you're chewing up and spitting out others, then there's a pretty, indi- pretty good indicator about whose power you're working from and in in life. As Paul concludes this instruction on spiritual warfare, he identifies exactly what we're supposed to do about it. As we put on this armor, he says, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. The praying Christian stands guard to ensure the safety of his fellow soldiers. Every time we pray, every time we pray for one another, we are communing with our victorious king and engaging the enemy on the battleground on which he's already lost. In spiritual warfare, prayer is the difference maker between simply moving through life, fighting battles and facing facing battles and being engaged in the war that's already been won. And so I, I just my challenge for you, my encouragement for you this week is to make prayer your first step rather than your last resort. To recognize that whatever you may face, whatever decisions you have, as innocuous as they may seem or as significant as they may be, is, is to make prayer your first step. Not your only one, but to make it your first step in recognizing that there's a spiritual realm that God is at work in behind whatever is going on in the physical one. As innocuous as they may seem, prayer is the front line of the battle that so many around us are facing. And while the physical symptoms, the stress, the anxiety, the anger, the disappointment, the depression, fear, seem like they may overwhelm us, our prayers are answered by the one who's already defeated what's trying to defeat us. And so over the next couple weeks, you know, we're going to be looking at what this looks like as we talk about our enemy, as we talk about our allies, as we talk about who we're fighting for. And, you know, we may continue to wonder, you know, are psychics real? What about horoscopes or exorcisms, Ouija boards? Are these things scary or fake? Should we ignore them? Should we be consumed by them? Well, here's the thing. Most of the time those questions come from, and the responses come from a place of fear. And the truth is, not only can we be liberated from that fear, we can conquer it through the perfect love of Jesus, who has already driven it out with his love for us. More on that in the next three weeks. Don't miss them. Let me pray for us. God, um, we acknowledge that we don't have the perspective that you do, uh, that we don't know what all is happening around us, but that you've already taken care of it, and we ask that you give us the trust and the hope and the wisdom through your spirit that we need to um, not be caught up in our physical battles so much that we forget that you've already won the war. God, we ask that you help us to see how weak the enemy's schemes are, 
how foolish they are, even though they are crafty and deceitful, uh, to see them exposed as lies, uh, to rely on the truth that we have through Jesus. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.